Thank you, Van. Sis. You know, while we were traveling through Israel, I got to see a lot of the places that I have only read about in Scripture. I had the privilege to go to many different places to see the different cultures, to uh, try different food. I ate falafel. I don't need to eat it again. Once is enough. Uh, but we had, we had a great time over there, all of us that was on the trip. There were several spots that we got to visit that were among my favorites. Uh, actually, I had three. The Mount of Beatitudes, or where the Sermon on the Mount was preached, the Mount of Olives, and the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Sea of Galilee. I had the privilege of being able to preach a condensed sermon. I say condensed because it really wasn't but about 15 minutes. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was actually from this text. What I want to do today is expand that sermon that I preached then, and I want to talk to you about the topic of crunch time. I want you to look at verse 26, I mean 36 of Matthew 26, and let's start reading. It says, Then cometh Jesus with him unto a place called Gethsemane. Now Gethsemane, you probably know this, means oil press. And saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. Verse 39, He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. <coughs> Excuse me. And saith unto Peter, What could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Father, today as we look at this very powerful, very important passage of Scripture, I pray that we would be here in the moment with you with your word, that we wouldn't be concerned about what's going on outside, what's going to happen later on today, or what has happened this week. But we would be here in the moment with you, with your word, desiring to hear with our whole hearts what it is you're saying to us. Father, show us today what we need to see. Teach us what we need to know. In Christ's name, amen. Now, how many of you are familiar with the phrase, crunch time? Wait a minute, we don't have anybody watches sports in here? This is Oklahoma, isn't it? I'm back home, right? Well, if you watch sports or are familiar with sports, you're familiar with the phrase, crunch time. Well, that phrase is also used in the business world. 
In the business world, the phrase crunch time has to do with the week or, or the hours or days just before and immediately before a project is due. Matter of fact, in the business world, crunch time is usually when a corporation or a business requires their employees to work 12, 14, 16 hours a day, seven days a week until the project is ready. Now, in the sports world, for instance, uh, let's take basketball. In basketball, crunch time applies to the last few minutes of the last play in the fourth quarter. The last moments when the score is tied up and one shot can either win or lose the game. Now, the reason that I'm telling you this, I'm setting the stage for you for the passage of Scripture that we just read. You see, for the Son of God, it was crunch time. It was Thursday night, close to midnight. It's been a week full of last things. His last visit to the temple. His last sermon. The last supper with His disciples. And now with three of His inner circle, the last prayer He's going to pray before He goes to the cross. And for Jesus, this defining moment, this zero hour, folks, this crunch time will take place not in a gym, but in a garden. Not behind a desk, but behind a tree. Not in a comfortable chair, but lying on the cold, hard, rocky ground. Now what you need to understand this morning is, when Jesus entered into the Garden of Gethsemane, He knew that He would be arrested there. He knew that it was the beginning of the end. When John described the arrival of the soldiers to arrest Jesus, listen to what he says, John chapter 18 and verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon Him, or all things that were going to happen to Him, He went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Understand, friend, Jesus knew it was crunch time. It was zero hour. He knew this is what His entire life had been coming down to. This was His purpose. Now you need to carefully listen, and listen close because my voice is going to hold out for about 12 and a half to 15 minutes. So I've got to get everything I need to say in, in a short time. So I want you to listen close now, and carefully today, because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, or if one day you decide to be a follower of Christ, understand, friend, there'll be times you'll have to go through your own personal Gethsemane. In fact, that explains to me why Jesus invited three of the disciples to go with Him. You see, Gethsemane was a familiar place with Jesus and His disciples. It was a place they had been to many times. Uh, that night when Judas betrayed Jesus, he knew exactly where to find Him. He knew where He would be. Matter of fact, John says in John 18 too, that Jesus oftentimes met His disciples in that garden. Now Jesus invites His inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, to accompany Him. Now, folks, I believe he did this for a reason. He wanted them and us to learn how to handle those crunch times. Now, let me define for you. Webster's Dictionary says it's a period of time where an ultimate decision has to be made. Well, let me define what it means for us if you're a Christian. Crunch time simply means this. It means we are faced with a situation where we have to make a moral choice and we have to decide. Am I going to do what God wants, or am I going to do what I want? That's what crunch time means. Now, I can think of some crunch times in my life. I think about 30 years ago, uh, I was sitting in my truck in the parking lot of all places, a softball stadium. 
on a late Saturday night. We had just finished the tournament. And I was sitting in my truck, and God was wearing me out. For several weeks, I'd been dealing with this. You see, it was crunch time. I needed to make a decision. Was I going to continue the direction that I had my life planned out for? I had it all in line. What I was going to do, I was going to rise through the ranks and retire young, which I ended up doing anyway. See, God blesses and works things out. But I had it all set. I was going to make all the money I could. I already had Marcia and I retired living on a lake somewhere. So I had to make a decision. Was I going to follow through with what I wanted? Or was I going to be obedient to what God was calling me to do and going to be a preacher of the gospel? It was crunch time. I had to make a decision. Take a young couple, two young adults, they go out on a date. They have to decide, are they going to maintain their sexual purity or are they going to indulge in sinful, selfish pleasures? It's crunch time, decision time. Take a, a, a husband and a wife. They're going through some difficult times in their marriage. Are they going to throw it away? Are they just going to get a divorce? Or are they going to keep the promises that they made to God and to themselves and they're going to work out the problem? It's crunch time. Now folks, what we're going to learn here this morning from the Garden of Gethsemane and what I want you to remember, and this is important, this is key. The benefits of doing the will of God are always greater than the cost of not doing the will of God. As we look at Jesus, we can learn this. Number one, crunch time, it involves seeking the will of God. Matter of fact, folks, in, let me say this. In the times in the Gospels that we see Jesus praying, only one time do we ever see Him praying the same thing more than once. And it's right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matter of fact, look at verse 39. Jesus says, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Look at verse 42. He says, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And then look at verse 44. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Jesus said the same thing three times. You see, in the most anguished, the most uh, difficult prayer that Jesus ever prayed, one thing was on His mind, friend, and one thing was on His heart, and that was the will of God. Now, apart from the will of God, do you realize, apart from the will of God, there would have never been the Garden of Gethsemane. It was God's will that Jesus was there that night. Now, listen to me. People who have no concern for the will of God and are only interested in doing what they want, they will never have to go through a garden experience. They will never have to have these defining moral and spiritual moments in life because it's all about them, what they want, not what God wants. But friend, on one of the, the darkest nights that ever dawned in that garden, in that olive grove, on the darkest nights of all nights in the history of mankind, Jesus was there because of the will of God the Father. Do you realize doing the Father's will? Friend, that had been the supreme concern of Jesus all of His life. All of His life. When He was 12 years old, you remember He got separated from His parents? His parents had to go find Him. Where'd they find Him? The temple. Remember what he said? Did you not know I'd have been about my father's business? 
And then early in his ministry, in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Later on in his ministry, in John 6 and 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Understand, the will of God the Father was not something that God the Father forced on God the Son. It was something that God the Son was always seeking from God the Father. That's why Jesus said in John 5.30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, friend. And I thought about this uh, one night we were sitting while we were going through traveling there in Israel. My brother and I were sitting out on the balcony of the hotel that we were staying at, and we were looking out over the city. And in the morning, we were going to visit the, garden, the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I made a comment to him. I said, Danny, have you ever thought about this? In reality, the Bible is the story of two gardens. There's the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. What one man did in the first garden ruined us, and what the other man did in the second garden rescued us. In the first garden, a man named Adam, he decided he would seek his own will rather than doing what he knew God wanted him to do. He said, no, I'll do what I want to do. And because of that, we now have the four major problems in our world today. That's sin, sickness, sorrow, and death. Do you realize, folks, ultimately, the reason why there's cancer and murder and divorce and adultery and homosexuality and greed and terrorism and jealousy is because one man looked at God and said, not your will be done, but my will be done. But then when Jesus came to the Garden of Gethsemane, He said, Father, not my will, but Thy will be done. Now I want you to listen real close. If you're a Christian... If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to get this truth down into your heart. Friend, just like Jesus, you and I, we are put here on this earth to seek and do the will of God. That's why we're here. Every day of a life of a follower of Jesus Christ should be about seeking, finding, and doing the will of God that day. But here's the problem. Because crunch time not only involves seeking the will of God, but it also includes struggling with the will of God. Now I know there are some super saint, high-minded, Pharisee, pharisaical Christians and scholars in our day that say you should never struggle in doing the will of God. They have never read this passage of Scripture, I promise you. They've never read it. Because the truth of the matter is, even though doing the will of God is always right, friend, it ain't always easy. I mean, if you'd have been in the Garden of Gethsemane that night, you could easily pick Jesus out from the other the disciples that were there. You know why? Because they were asleep and Jesus was on His face crying out in agony to God. Jesus would have been the one whose clothes were soaked through with sweat. Jesus would have been the one on that cold, rocky ground whose hair was plastered wet to His forehead, not just by sweat, but by blood. As Jesus walked from the upper room that night after the Last Supper, and He went out through the eastern gates, and He walked down and crossed the brook Kidron, and across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as I stood there that day on the Mount of Olives, 
And I thought about that night. I thought about how Jesus stepping across the brook Kidron, which at that time would have been running blood red because of the wash off of the sacrifices from the temple. And as he saw the blood in that creek, it no doubt spoke to his heart of his blood, the ultimate sacrifice that was soon to be made. And as he stepped across that brook and began walking up the Mount of Olives, I can just imagine Jesus looking back over his shoulder at the lights of Jerusalem twinkling. But here's the thing, friend. Jesus saw something the disciples could not see. Jesus knew that outside the city of Jerusalem, the greatest battle in the history of the world was going to be won and the war was going to be over. And Jesus also knew He was facing something no one else could face, ever has faced, or ever will face. And that was taking the sins of all the world, of all time, on Himself. And Jesus knew that all hell was literally about to break loose on Him personally. Jesus knows what He's supposed to do, but He knows what He doesn't want to do. And the problem is, it's the same thing. You ever been in that dilemma? Can, you, can, can I get a witness from you? You know what I'm talking about? You know what you're supposed to do, but you know what you really don't want to do. I think we've all been there. But I want you to listen to me. What Jesus is facing at this point in time is a struggle of cosmic, eternal proportions. You talk about being all stressed out. Friend, you have not seen stress until you get a vision of Jesus in the garden. He was not just all stressed out. He was eternally stressed out. In fact, He was stressed out to the point it was so great that He almost died in the Garden of Gethsemane before He ever went to the cross. Say, why would you say that? Look at verse 38. He said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Even unto death. Friend, listen to me. There's no greater agony, no greater grief, no greater suffering than that which takes you to the very brink of death. The stress was so great, the struggle was so real that a doctor by the name of Luke recorded it this way in Luke twenty-two forty-four. And being in agony, he was praying fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. You say, yeah, that really happened? Oh yeah, I believe that really happened. God's Word says so. And I will tell you this, it happens today. Doctors describe this condition as hematidrosis. And what happens is, someone is under such emotional distress that the capillaries beneath the skin begin to burst. And they begin to literally sweat blood. It's rare, but it's serious, and it happens. You see, at this moment, this crunch time, this zero hour, Jesus' heart rate was off the charts. His blood pressure was going through the roof. Now why was He in such agony? Friend, let me assure you, it was not because Jesus Christ was afraid of dying. Jesus Himself said in Matthew 10 and 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Listen to me, friend. It wasn't that Jesus feared death. Because He had come to die. He realized that. Do you realize that the only person ever born in this world for the purpose of not living but dying was Jesus Christ? 
That's why He came. That was His purpose. That was His goal. What He feared was not death, friend. It was a cup. Look again at verse 39. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. Now, let me ask you, what was this cup that Jesus did not want to drink from? You say, well, it was sin. Okay. Yeah, it was. But it was more than sin. Let's, 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 let's tighten the focus a little bit. In that cup was the worst, the most vile, the most wicked sin imaginable in the history of mankind. Think of the worst sin, the worst murder, the worst, uh, the, the, the worst terrorist attack, the worst abuse you can imagine. It was in that cup. The sin of all the world, of all humanity, your sin, my sin, was in that cup. And he who knew no sin was going to become sin for you and for me. But friend, let me take it a step farther. Not just sin in that cup, but that cup represented the wrath of a holy God that would be poured out on His Son as punishment for the sins of the world. All Jesus Christ had ever known throughout all eternity was perfect, complete, total, whole, intimate fellowship with His heavenly Father. Now, He's facing not the love of His heavenly Father, but the judgment of God, the wrath of God, the punishment of God on sin that He didn't even commit. Here's the point. I said it a while ago. I'm going to say it again. Even though it's always best to do the will of God, friend, it's not always easy to do the will of God. There's a cost for doing God's will. There's a price to be paid if you're going to do God's will in your life. Jesus knows what it's like when you're in a situation where you're struggling to do what you know God wants you to do and it's not what you want to do. You know, our Savior, He knows what it is to be torn between two desires. He knows what it's like to beg God to change His mind about something but then to hear God the Father say no. Now I want you to listen real close to me. If it was always easy to do God's will, everybody would do God's will all the time and nobody would sin. But the problem is, it's not always easy. And it's important for you to hear. I want you to listen close to me. It's in those private struggles, in those personal garden moments, when you are there alone with God, friend, where the battle is either won or lost. In your Christian life, the battle is won or lost in those times. Now you may think this, you may think the battle for our salvation was fought at the cross, Friend, it was not fought at the cross. The battle for our salvation was fought in the garden. Jesus, if He had not said, Your will, not mine, but Yours be done, then friend, you and I, we wouldn't be here today. Jesus made up His mind in the garden that He would rather face hell for us than to go to heaven without us. If that ain't love, I don't know what is. Friend, the war for our salvation was won at the cross. And victory was proclaimed at the resurrection. But the battle for our salvation was fought in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christian, if you'll, and this is true, if you'll make your mind up in private 
what the no's of your life are and what the yeses of your life are, then you can face anything that happens in public. Does that make sense to you? Now I warn you, it's going to be a struggle. It's not always going to be easy. I remember reading the story of Augustine, the great Christian Augustine, who we call St. Augustine. As a younger man, he tells of a turning point in his life. As a younger man, he knew right from wrong. He was supposedly a Christian. But he was living a life that wasn't in the will of God. He was having an adulterous affair with a woman. And he was sitting on a park bench one day, weeping his eyes out and tears falling on the open Bible that he had in his hands. And he heard somebody from down the street, he heard somebody say, pick it up. Pick it up. Now they wasn't talking to Augustine. They were talking to somebody else. But the words he heard motivated him to hold his Bible up and look down and begin to read. And he began to read these words out of Romans chapter 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts thereof. That's what he needed to hear, wasn't it? Let me tell you something while I'm here on this point, friend. Do you really want to know and do God's will? Then read God's Word. Read God's Word and apply it to your life. At that moment, Augustine, in his own Garden of Gethsemane, he said, from now on, it's not my will, Father, it's your will. He said goodbye to that old life and that lady, and the rest of his life he gave to the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe one of the reasons, folks, that the story of the Garden of Gethsemane is even in the Bible is to teach us that even though the struggle to do what is right against the temptation to do what is wrong is real, friend, because of the example of Jesus Christ and the power of God, we can win that struggle. But it takes learning the third and final principle. You see, crunch time not only involves seeking the will of God and struggling with the will of God. But number three, it invites surrendering to the will of God. Jesus prays a prayer three times. And He prayed out loud, I believe, for a purpose. Because He knew other people would be listening. He knew the disciples would hear His prayer. Jesus knew one day you and I would hear His prayer. And He wanted us to hear that prayer so we would pray the same thing. Now, friend, listen to me. Christian, there'll be times when you find yourself in those situations where you're struggling with God's will. Even to the point where you ask God to maybe change His will. But look what Jesus said again in verse 39. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. Now, the prayer of all prayers is what Jesus said in 42. Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, Thy will be done. I want you to notice how Jesus addressed His prayer. Maybe you've never heard this before. In the Garden of Gethsemane, folks, and this story is the only time we encounter, it's the only place in Scripture where Jesus ever addressed God in prayer as my Father. As my Father. Mark puts it this way in Mark 14, 36. He says that Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. Now many of you know what the word Abba is. It's an Aramaic word. It's equivalent to uh, today to our words Daddy or Papa. Now why was this so important? 
Well, friend, Jesus' prayer was above all things a prayer of surrender. Do you understand that? He was coming to God as a child comes to a father. And he was saying, in effect, to put it in our modern lingo, he was saying, Daddy, you always know what is best. You always know what is right. You always do what is right. And you've never made a mistake. So not what I will, but what you will. Let your will be done. Understand, there's nothing wrong with the struggle, Christian. Struggling with the will of God is natural. But here's what you need to remember. If the price of an action defies the will of God, that price is too high to pay. Jesus could have said no in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. If He had said no, He would have avoided it. You say, how could He have said no? He wasn't forced to say yes. Matter of fact, in verse 53, He says, Thinkest thou, I cannot now pray to my Father, and He shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. He didn't have to go through with any of this. Jesus could have said no that night, and He would have, he would have avoided the cost of crucifixion, of isolation, of separation, of experiencing the full wrath of a holy God against the sin of this world. But the price He would have had to pay would have been losing the entire human race, friend, to a devil that hates us and a hell that awaits us. See, the benefits of following God's will was not only the approval of His heavenly Father, but it was the love, the praise, the glory, the adoration, and the serve from multitude millions of millions of millions of people for all eternity. Anyone in business, and I'm going to wrap it up here. Anyone in business knows that you, before you enter into a business deal, you need to do a cost-benefit analysis. Well, let me say again in a different way. Remember, the benefits of doing the will of God always outweigh the cost of not doing the will of God. Some of you may remember the name. I'll close with a true story. One of the greatest uh, missionaries, famous missionaries of all time in all history was a man by the name of David Livingston. Now, about 150 years ago, David Livingston had a burden in his heart and felt a call to Africa. And at that time, on the continent of Africa, folks, there were basically no Christians. Now, David Livingston left behind a comfortable life in England, and he went to Africa to be a missionary, to bring the gospel to people who had never heard the name Jesus. Well, not long after he arrived, he was attacked. And this is why I don't go to Africa. He was attacked by a lion. And this huge lion crushed his left arm. But there was a reason for that. They transported him to the coast of Africa. And there he was nursed back to health by a nurse whose name was Mary. Later she became his wife. They married. They had five children together as the years passed. Well, one day while crossing one of the vast African plains, one of their children got sick and died suddenly. So he and Mary concluded it would be safer for her and the children if they went back to her native land, her native home of Scotland. So for five long years, Dr. Livingston didn't see the faces of his wife and kids because the work was so great in Africa. The burden was so much on his heart. He knew what God had called him to do. After five years, he finally got to go home and to see his wife and children only to discover that 
They had written to him for several years in the letters and couldn't find him, never got through. While he was in Africa for those five years, his mother and father had both died. He spent a little time with his family, but he kept thinking about those thousands and thousands of villages there in Africa who had never heard the gospel. So he went back to Africa. More years passed. Finally, he got a letter from Mary. It found him about eight months late. But the letter found him, and it said, uh, I am, the kids are grown. I'm coming to Africa. I will see you in a year. Well, he couldn't wait for his beloved Mary to show up. And she crawled for months and months. She crossed oceans. She crossed African plains. She crossed African rivers. Finally, she arrived with her husband. Within just a few short weeks, however, she contracted an African fever. Dr. Livingston, with all of his ability, tried everything he could, but she died. And he buried her underneath a huge African boabab tree. Dr. Livingston stayed in Africa the rest of his life. Finally, finally he died from multiple diseases that had racked his body. Now you can just imagine 150, 130 years ago, 140 years ago in Africa what medical condition was like. He died of the various diseases like malaria and, 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 and other things that caused him to bleed internally. And he wasted away and died. But he made such an impact, the African people cut his heart out and buried it in Africa and sent his body back to England. Now, I'm going to ask you something. He, I'll admit, he paid an unbelievable cost for doing the will of God, for surrendering to what God called him to do. What about the benefits? Well, let me give you some statistics. 25 years after he first went to Africa, now, remember, before he came to Africa, there were hardly any Christians. 25 years after he first went to Africa, there were 10 million Christians in Africa. Folks, today, there are more than 500 million Christians in Africa. Now, do you think that he would think it was worth it? Do you think eternity would show that it was worth it? Listen to me, Christian. Every day of our life, we have the potential to face those crunch time moments. Whether it's, whether it's being honest in a business deal, uh, whether it's keeping your purity, whether it's holding the marriage together, or simply telling the truth. We're all going to face those moments, those personal Gethsemanes. Now, I'm going to tell you something in closing. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but God does. And perhaps you needed to hear this message this morning. Maybe you're facing a Gethsemane in your life right now at this very moment. And the struggle is intense. The struggle is great in your life. Do I do what I want or what God wants? I want to encourage you to follow the example of Jesus. And remember the benefits and the blessings of doing the will of God are always better and always outweigh the cost of not doing the will of God. What are you facing today? I want to encourage you. It's not always easy, but it is always right to follow God's will. You bow your heads, please.